good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falkin' Around podcast. Hope you're having a good week, good weekend. The heat wave that hit the Rochester and Western New York area last week seems to have uh, gone away a little bit. Nice, nice midsummer weather the last couple of days. Hopefully you've been able to get out and enjoy it. Sports are coming back. As sports fans, those are words that after four months in pandemic, I think we're all ecstatic to hear. And it's strange because as much as I know they're coming back, the NBA's in the bubble down in Orlando, the NHL camps are starting to get together, guys are starting to skate, of course, Major League Baseball, they've got their summer training seasons now going the NFL, actually, a couple teams, rookies, scheduled to report at the end of this week. We'll see how that goes because the NFL, NFLPA, is still working on some things to get things going. But I still don't feel like we're there. You know, in, in, with baseball, the news the other day about Aroldis Chapman of the Yankees testing positive. He's going to be away from the club for quite some time. I just continue to think that there's so many other things going on. There's so many unanswered questions, and we're about seven, about nine days away from the opener as I, as I record this. So it's it's going to be a work in progress, and I think, which is really strange when you think of major league sports, the the highest level of sports. There's going to be some things that you make up along the way. You know, it's almost like when you were a kid and, you know, you get together and you play pickup. You start with rules and as the games go, you create more rules to make the game work. And you argue about the rules, of course, the entire time you're playing. And then eventually you get to a point where somebody gets pissed off, takes their ball and goes home and that ends the game anyway. That's kind of what I feel is going on with these sports as we try to get going. They've got a blueprint. They've got an idea. They've got a need, and, and that need is the almighty dollar. Billions of dollars at stake as these sports try to get things done. But while we're seeing some real on-field action, and if you watch the Yes Network or SNY, you'll see the, the teams playing. We saw Masahiro Tanaka get hit in the head with a line drive and live batting practice. There have been some inter-squad scrimmages. There are going to be some scrimmages coming up between teams. And and baseball, to me, is a, is a game that works with social distancing better than most. If you think about it, how often are players right next to each other while they compete? Not all that often. Now, there's still danger because the catcher, umpire, batter are right next to each other. When you slide in, you know, and you're in an athletic state, so your breathing is going to be intensified. And, of course, they say the exhale and all of those things are what spread this pandemic. I I think there's issues, but I think baseball could and should be able to pull this off. And I'm still not all in on, yes, 60 games. It's going to happen. We're going to get to a point where there's going to be playoffs and a World Series and we're going to crown – an asterisk champion at some point. I I just, I'm not all the way there, but I do think in in nine days, Yankees nationals, Scherzer against the Yankees, 
new phenom, Garrett Cole. I think those two, those games will happen. And I think, you know, the following weekend, Saturday, Sunday, you're going to see games. And I, I, I do believe we're going to get started. Just where does it go from there? And, and so many things as we look at this that are just still up in the air. The Toronto Blue Jays are dealing with this in a, in a different light because the law of Canada is different from the law of the United States. And for the Blue Jays who live and, and play in Canada during the season, they're going to stay at Rogers Center in a hotel, theoretically, not be allowed to leave that area. That's their bubble. It's going to be more difficult, I think, because now you've got teams traveling into Canada. Is that going to be allowed? And one of the alternatives, if that's not going to work logistically, and again, nine days out, this is an unknown quantity. One of the possibilities is Dunedin, Florida, where they have their spring training complex. Well, of course, Florida right now, the COVID rates are exploding, record numbers. Is that where you want to move your baseball team? And is that where you want to have people travel? And, you know, frankly, New York State, we, we have a two-week quarantine on people traveling from Florida. So the Yankees travel to Florida to play the Blue Jays. They can't come back to New York and, and go out in public for two weeks. It's logistically not going to work. The other possibility is Buffalo, where they have their minor league team, the Buffalo Bisons, a AAA team, plays at Salem Stadium, which is right downtown, which that stadium was built for a major league team some close to 30 years ago now that could be expanded. At the time, baseball was thinking of an expansion. Buffalo was on the list of possibilities. The Expos were possibly going to move. That would have been a possibility. So while Salem Stadium is a triple-A stadium, it's possible to be a major league, could host a major league team. It's not all the way there to major league specifications. There's issues with lighting. There's not enough space in the clubhouse, in the locker rooms. There are issues. And it's strange because if you think about it, I'm a huge Mets fan. If the Mets were to play the Blue Jays in Buffalo, I would absolutely be checking out every game that I possibly could. Uh, an hour up the throughway, and I could catch a, a Mets game. That'd be fantastic. I would be all about that. But you know, of course, now really doesn't matter where these teams play because there are no fans. And I was even thinking of this. Well, you know, if you think about the Blue Jays, if it doesn't matter where they play, why not send them to a city like New York or Chicago? where they have two stadiums. And, and odds are one of those stadiums is going to be available at some point. And with no fans, does it really matter what time these games are? It's like spring training now. You play a game at noon and play another one at 7 o'clock at night. It wouldn't matter. So I think logistically we're, we're very much putting the cart before the horse in some cases but the reality is these teams in their own little worlds are getting ready to go. And, you know, I wanted to look today at, 
the Yankees and, and their team going forward. And they are the odds-on favorite, or were, I guess, to win the World Series this year. They had the highest win total. And there's still win totals, even though there's only a 60-game season for this year. There are win totals that are put out by DraftKings, and the Yankees have the highest win total at 37 and a half. They're expected to win 37 games this year out of 60. 37 and 23 would be the record. And that, if you think about it, you think they're going to win more than 37, you bet the over. You think they're going to win less, you bet the under. That's how these things work. The Yankees are a team that, as you look at them, on paper, are very complete. They've got a deep, deep bullpen, even with the loss of Aroldis Chapman. And I had read some things when Chapman was ruled out, and you know we're assuming he's going to be out for at least a couple weeks of the season. And in a very condensed season, a couple weeks is a huge deal. So that's assuming he's able to get back, get healthy, get ramped back up, and be ready to throw. But Zach Britton a couple years ago was the best reliever in baseball. Last year as a setup man for Chapman, and even when he filled in as a closer for Chapman, he was very good. The Yankees are paying him a lot of money. Adam Adovino, a lot of money. They still got guys like Chad Green, Tommy Canley, Jonathan Holder. There is depth in that bullpen, so I'm not all that worried about the bullpen. I think the offense will be there. Giancarlo Stanton is healthy, finally. Will he stay healthy? Who knows? Aaron Judge is not. Aaron Judge is dealing with a stiff neck. Now, Judge and Stanton both wouldn't have been able to play had this season started in April the way it normally would. Both would be out till probably June or July, depending. And Aaron Judge, over the last two years, has missed 110 games. A couple of years ago, you looked at this guy when he hit 51 home runs, 52 home runs, which then was a rookie record. Of course, New York Mets first baseman Pete Alonso smashed that record last year. He hit one more home run than Judge, just absolutely obliterated Judge's record. Mets fan, remember. So you thought Judge was going to be the face of the Yankees for years to come. The Yankees put that jury box in, in left field. People dressed up as old-style jurists, and that was a big thing. And, and Judge, the 99 jerseys were everywhere, just like back in the 90s and early 1000s, Derek Jeter's number two was everywhere. And you thought Aaron Judge was going to be that guy. But now, after a couple years of injury and lack of ability just to stay in the field because he's been productive when he's played, the question now is, as the Yankees look towards the end of his arbitration years, now he's got a couple more years of arbitration before he's the free agent. The question is, if you're the Yankees, how much do you pay this guy? Aaron Judge is now 28 years old, so he'll be a free agent at 30. His free agent deal is going to be his one free agent deal. If you look at what baseball has done, Baseball's the king of the eight to ten year contracts. Harper, ten years. Look at Trout, ten years. Manny Machado, ten years. We'll see how the free agent market reacts this offseason. It's a great free agent class headed by Mookie Betts, who turned down reportedly a ten year deal with the Red Sox. We'll see if that's still something that happens 
post pandemic and, and, you know, all things change with the economics of the game. So, but Aaron judge, if you look at him, is he a guy, if you're the Yankees that you invest in, or is he a guy that you look at and go as good as he can be, we could come close without spending that money. Whereas you look at a young man like Liber Torres, who's about five years younger than judge who plays a more vital position this year. He's going to be the full-time shortstop. And, you know, that still remains to be seen. He, he, I think will be very good at shortstop, maybe not a gold glove fielder, but more than serviceable. And with the ability to have DJ LeMahieu play full-time at second base, I think that's an excellent middle infield. Now, of course, LeMahieu is dealing with the post effects of COVID as well. So, no guarantee there. But the Yankees have decisions to make. They also have depth in the outfield. Where I don't like the Yankees' depth is the starting pitching. And in a 60-game season, I, I, I can't decide yet whether or not depth of starting pitching is a thing that's going to be a big deal or not a big deal. It, it's such a short season. Are you going to need an additional arm to come up? You know, there, there's no telling what James Paxton's going to do. He's coming off injury again, as is Luis Severino. Masahiro Tanaka has been consistently inconsistent. But overall, he's been pretty good. Jay Happ has a lot of money at stake if he can make 11 starts. It's pretty crazy that if he makes 10 or 11 starts, a $17 million option will kick in for him for next year. So that's an incentive there. I, I just wonder beyond Garrett Cole, where did the Yankees stack up in that, in that rotation? And, and in a short season, does it matter? Is it going to be something that the offense can just carry them the way through? And I think that offense will be fine. Every position, in my opinion, except first base has a potential to have an all-star player. Now, First base may find that as well if Miguel Andujar ends up playing full-time there and gets the bat back that he had a couple years ago before his injury problem. I'm not a believer in Luke Voigt. I think he's a very good role player off the bench. If he's your backup outfielder first baseman, then you are in good shape. I just don't see anything more. And I know Yankee fans love this guy. I just don't see it. They've got enough depth in the outfield with Aaron Hicks back from his injury situation with Gardner, Talkman, Stanton, presumably Judge. There's plenty of depth everywhere. This is a team that should compete in, for a championship this year. And more importantly, I think it's the schedule that helps the Yankees out in a big way. The Yankees certainly could go get people. They've got guys like Clint Frazier who many other teams would be happy to have as a starting outfielder, he'll likely not even see regular time on this team. But if you look at the Yankees' schedule, they've got the benefit of playing some of the worst teams in baseball 10 times. The American League East is atrocious. It is the worst division in baseball, and I really don't think it's close. Two teams, other than the Yankees in that division, are – above 500 as it pertains to win totals. The Rays, who at 33 and a half, 
are very well respected and they should be. What Kevin Cash has done as a manager down there is beyond great. He is one of the brilliant young minds in baseball and has them playing every year at a much higher level than their talent would suggest. And that's, to me, what a great coach can do or a great organization can do. They also have the benefit of being used to playing in an empty stadium. Now, I know that sounds like a joke, and I don't mean it as a joke. I think it's going to take some getting used to for these guys to go out there with no people in the stands and be ready to play. It is a totally different scenario that it's going to, you know, think of opening day. You have the pageantry, you have all those things, players get introduced, all the emotions. Are they going to do that? And, and if so, who's going to clap? Who's there to clap? It's a, it's a big adjustment. And where the Rays, this is their normalcy. The Oakland A's, normalcy. Empty stadiums. In Boston, it's going to seem strange. In Chicago with Wrigley, it's going to seem strange. Yankee Stadium, it'll be very weird. But in in Toronto or in, in Tampa, this is the normal behavior. So I expect the race to be very good. The Red Sox have a 31.5 over-under. To me, this is one of those reputation votes. You look at this Red Sox team and you look at what they've lost, what they've traded away, what they've replaced, what they've traded away. Injury concerns already. I mean, Chris Sale is not going to throw this year. Where are they going to come up with a starting rotation that's going to be good enough to get them above 500? I simply don't see it. So I think there's some still great talent. Bogarts, Devers are phenomenal players. You just to me, when you look at the totality, you still haven't fixed the bullpen. You still haven't replaced guys like David Price who left in a trade and Sale who's out with injury. There's not enough there to me to play to for them to be a good team. Now they may be above 500 because they have the benefit of playing 10 games against the Blue Jays and the Orioles. And the Blue Jays, let me start there. As good a young nucleus as we've seen in the last 20 years. Guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette, these guys are going to be superstars. And in a couple of years, I think the Blue Jays are going to be a team that we look at and say, wow, they have just got great talent. They're almost, to me, like what the Astros were without the cheating. The Astros put together all these young, talented players added a few pieces around them, made some key trades. Remember, they brought in Garrett Cole through trade, brought in Verlander through trade, things like that to get them over the hump. I think the Blue Jays are a couple years away from being a very similar type team. They're not there yet, though. So because of that, I think they're going to be a team that struggles to win 25 of 60. And then there's the Baltimore Orioles, who there are many things that are consistent in our world. Death taxes and the Baltimore Orioles being the worst team in Major League Baseball. The Orioles, who I always feel bad because they're, you know, here in Rochester, the Red Wings used to be the Orioles farm club. There are a ton of Orioles fans in this town. 
and they are great baseball fans. And the O's used to be a great organization. But this great organization, you know, it's almost like Blockbuster video. You know, remember when Blockbuster was on every corner and, you know, everyone went to Blockbuster? It was a great company. That's like the Baltimore Orioles. They're one step above Blockbuster. And I don't know how they get back to normal. I mean, they keep drafting number one overall. You would think eventually they're going to get some talent that comes up through and makes them competitive. But eventually isn't 2020. Eventually isn't now. So because of that, the O's are going to be terrible again. And and let's be honest, the Yankees have the benefit of playing 40 games against those teams that we just talked about. I think they'll win 27 of those 40 games. Think about that. Now you've got 20 other games. You go 500, you win 37 games. And that's very possible because they do have the last week of the season, the shortened season, they have three games against the Marlins at Yankee Stadium. The Marlins are another team that I think eventually could be good. They continue to stockpile young talent, but all that young talent's way down in their system. So they're, by the end of the season, the last weekend of the season, those guys are going to be playing to get back home and finally see their families after not being able to see them for months. They won't care about those games. So the Yankees have a great opportunity this year, in my opinion, in spite of Chapman, LeMayhew, the COVID concerns, Judge's injury, his stiff neck may be a problem. I still think they're the team to beat in Major League Baseball. So Yankee fans, there you go. little season preview for you. And by the way, cannot wait to watch Garrett Cole again go, go against Scherzer. As a National League guy, I love pitching. I love when two horses get up there and are just throwing bullets and making batters look silly. And I expect to see that. Scherzer, by the way, not to go off on a tangent, but it's an important year for him. Last year, he wasn't the dominant great pitcher he's been for the last 10 years. He was dinged up and not nearly as effective. As he was. So I'll be interested to see how does he bounce back this year. And again, the short season, does it help a guy like that or does it hurt a guy like that? So good to talk actual baseball. One thing I got to bring up with baseball as it starts to get towards opening day, Major League Baseball has a package where you can sign on through your TV provider or even through the Internet where you can watch all the games. You basically subscribe to this package, and you can watch all the games. And if you are a fan of, say, the Chicago White Sox or the Cubs, and you live in New York, it's great because you can watch every game. If you're a Red Sox fan, you live here in Rochester, you subscribe to it, you catch every Sox game. What you can't watch are the local teams because local blackouts apply. You can't watch in Rochester the Mets or the Yankees. Those are our teams that are blacked out. In Buffalo, there are three teams blacked out, the Indians, Blue Jays, and the Pirates. Now, blackouts in sports were set up to prevent someone like me to watch the game on TV and force someone like me to drive to the stadium and go catch a game, which would make sense if that was a realistic possibility. You know, Tuesday night, 6 o'clock, 
oh, the game's blacked out. Maybe I'll drive to New York. No, it's five and a half hours. It doesn't happen. I understand that there's a lot of TV reasons for blackouts, but here we are in a pandemic. No fans are allowed in the stadium. There are going to be no way to, there's no way to watch games for people. You don't have an alternative. The game is blacked out. Deal with it. Major League Baseball's done as poor job of setting things up to grow their sport than anyone outside of the NHL. And the NHL, frankly, has surpassed baseball during this pandemic by coming up with labor peace for the next five years. And they did that last week. So Major League Baseball and Rob Manfred, this is a no-brainer. One season exemption, lift the blackout, let people watch the games. Revisit it next year. I just it blows my mind that that's not being discussed, and maybe it is, but it's just simply not being put to use. One other thing, as somebody who I'm old school, I'm an old guy. I love baseball on the radio. It's a nostalgic thing that I enjoyed as a kid, and I still enjoy it now. So I subscribe to the Major League at bat app. If you know what the app is. It's got statistics, information, baseball. It's updated all the time. You also can listen to every game on the radio. There are no blackouts for radio. You just pick your team and you listen to that game. And it's, again, if you like baseball on the radio, it's a great app. Every year I get it and it automatically renews. And I've been intrigued to see where this goes. It costs $20 for the year. I haven't heard a single thing. I got charged for 20 bucks in April for the year. So I'm good for the year, but they haven't contacted me to discount that, to credit me towards next year to do anything. They basically took my 20 bucks and been like, oh, thanks sucker. You paid. You're all, it's, it's very strange. But again, do you think baseball cares? No, they don't care. They get their money. They need their money more than ever because of the pandemic. And they just move on about their day. Baseball could care less about the fans, and it has nothing to do with the fans not being in attendance this year. So Major League Baseball is coming back. I'm looking forward to it, but they still got a lot of work to do, in my opinion, over the next couple weeks. Shift gears to football. ESPN's Bill Barnwell wrote an interesting column this week, and if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, this is one that you had to look at and go, huh, yeah. That's that's really good. And it is. It's really good for the Bills. But I think also that it, it, it should be cautiously optimistic when you view it as good. Barnwell wrote a column about ranking the top teams in 1 through 32, we went through the league, of offensive weapons. And it didn't include quarterbacks. So it was simply running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends. Those three position groups put together who had the best in the league. Number one was the Kansas City Chiefs, and I think they got better in the draft with this situation at running back with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, the kid from LSU, who I absolutely loved coming out of LSU. He and Damian Williams will be very good at running back. Travis Kelsey is the best tight end in football, and of course, Tyreek Hill, Sammy Watkins, McCole Hardman are an excellent wide receiver pairs. So the Chiefs 
I think deserve one of the top few spots. No, no doubt there. The Browns, interestingly, number two. And, you know, talk, I'm going to get to Josh Allen pressure, Baker Mayfield pressure again. You look at the running back position, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. Simply put, the best running back position in the NFL is the Cleveland Browns. Their wide receivers with Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry are as good a one-two as there is in the league. And frankly, I love the tight end position. Austin Hooper comes over from Atlanta to join David Njoku, who wants out. But you've got a two-headed monster at every position that's extremely enviable. Now, will the Browns be able to take advantage of that? I think new coach Kevin Stefanski and the upgrades on the offensive line certainly will go a long way to helping Baker Mayfield. But this is a make-or-break year for Mayfield, like it is all of these third-year quarterbacks outside of Lamar Jackson. These guys need to step forward this year because their teams have stepped forward. And if you look at the Browns, there can be no excuses for Baker Mayfield this year. Cowboys were the third team, and it makes sense, again, if you think, what they've done, uh, two of the three of the positions, Ezekiel Elliott's certainly a top five running back in anybody's rankings, except for the one guy who had him ranked 11th of running backs in the league, which whatever. Blake Jarwin made some plays at tight end, but I don't believe in him. I think he's okay, but not good. Then you look at the wide receiver position. Amari Cooper is the headliner. Michael Gallup is going into his third year and has spectacular abilities. He makes make some plays that he shouldn't make and misses some opportunities he should make. And then the rookie C.D. Lamb, who most people think will be a great NFL wide receiver. So the Cowboys have great group there. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are the fourth. And you think about Brady going there and, you know, Brady always made everyone better. That was, you know, what was always said about Brady. Well, think of the position groups he has now. The best tight end group in the league. Gronk comes back. He joins O.J. Howard and Cameron Brake. That's a three-headed monster, a tight end, that's as good as you could ever have. If Gronk still has gaps left in the tank, and I do believe he will, then that tight end group could be legendary. Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, probably the best one-two of wide receivers in the league. I mean, I, I mentioned OBJ and, and Jarvis Landry. I think the only one, two better than them is Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. I think both are top 15 wide receivers in the league, and Evans is top five. You look at Ronald Jones and you say, ah, they lack a little something at the running back position. Jones actually had a good second half last year. So, again, with Tom Brady – can that offensive line do their job? Because I think the Bucks and, and Bruce Arians, an offensive-minded coach, they're going to score a lot of points. That's a pretty good group. The Carolina Panthers are next, and I thought this was maybe a little bit of a reach. I love Christian McCaffrey. How do you not? What he's done his first couple of years in the league are Marshall Falk-esque. And Falk not only has a Hall of Fame last name, he's a Hall of Fame back. So you look at Ian Thomas, a tight end, replacing Greg Olson. Eh. Curtis Samuel and DJ Moore. Eh. I didn't see Carolina being there other than McCaffrey. The Saints are at six. Alvin Kamara, Jared Cook, Michael Thomas are the 
the standbys, but Emmanuel Sanders joins there. This, to me, may have been a little high as well, but Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara are two of the better players in the league at their position, and because of that, I think they belong in the discussion. The Giants actually were number seven, and I didn't like this. Saquon Barkley is a top three back on anybody's list. Evan Ingram, if he ever stays healthy, I'm convinced, will produce. But I don't care for Golden Tate, Sterling Shepard, or Darius Slayton. I I think that's a very average wide receiver group that Daniel Jones has to work with. I thought the Giants at seven were high. Number eight are your Buffalo Bills, and that's the point of this discussion, to get to here. The Bills nationally are generally thought of much lower than they are in Western New York. The opinion of the Bills in Western New York is always much higher than it should be. Nationally, it's always much lower than it should be. You saw that yesterday with the Madden ratings released and everyone freaking out that Tredavious White's rating was 10 points lower than Stephon Gilmore. Um, It's a video game. It doesn't matter. I know. I know. You're a Bills fan and it hurts. It doesn't matter. Grow up. It's freaking Madden. Who gives a rat's ass? Does not matter. But the Bills position grouping is the eighth best in a very well-respected columnist opinion nationally. And I think that shows what Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have created. They not only have added talent, but they've created the image that they're doing the right thing nationally. Devin Singletary, in my opinion, last year showed moments where I think this kid could be a 1,400-yard back this year. Zach Moss is a guy that people are very high on. Frankly, I haven't seen enough of Zach Moss entire games, seen film, seen highlights. Everyone sees highlights. But watching an entire game is how you get the feel, in my opinion, for running back. And I haven't done enough research on that to be confident that Zach Moss is going to be the impact back that many others think he can be. But I love Devin Singletary. And if he stays healthy, he fumbled uh, four times last year in about 200 carries. Problematic, although a couple of them were in one game. So, you know, I kind of am not as hard on that as other people are. I think that's a problem. I think that's a potential home run with Devin Singletary. Tight end group, I frankly am not all that wild about. Dawson Knox last year made plays that you look at and you went, man, I love that kid. Running people over, the way he plays the position, love that. But he also had so many drops that I wonder, is he a guy who you can count on down in, down out? Tyler Croft, speaking of counting on, if he's healthy, he's a nice number two. I don't know the Bills have a number one, but I think they have potentially two good twos at tight end. Now, the wide receiver group with Stephon Diggs is where this position grouping gets the Bills this high ranking because Diggs is an elite wide receiver. He's a top 10 wide receiver in the NFL. You add to that John Brown, who last year showed he's much more than a speed threat. When John Brown was in Arizona, I think the perception of Brown was that 
send him down on the fly pattern. He's going to make plays. And he did. Well, last year we saw that John Brown is a very complete receiver. His speed and Diggs' root running ability will complement each other fantastically. And then you add the perfect slot wide receiver in Cole Beasley. Beasley's another guy who's got great route running ability and is always able to stick, to get open. So you look at these things, and yeah, the Bills, they absolutely are going to be one of those teams that you look at and go, this team can really put points on the board. But can Josh Allen take the strides? And here's where the discussion, it always comes back to the quarterback, but in Buffalo this year, maybe more so than ever, the pressure's going to be on a young guy in his third year. And, you know, I think we talked about this last week with Allen. The Bills mismanaged his rookie season badly. They didn't bring a veteran in for him to learn from. He was behind Nate Peterman for a half because Nate Peterman, everyone in football knew Nate Peterman couldn't be a starter except Sean McDermott. And maybe John Gruden because Gruden loves Nate Peterman. And Nate Peterman must be like the best guy ever. For coaches to overlook the lack of ability to watch him play and still think he can play because it's pretty obvious he can't, it's strange. But the Bills mismanaged because of Peterman, Josh Allen's rookie year. Last year, Allen took big steps forward. But he still, at many times, was that young, raw quarterback not seeing the proper read, not making the proper decision, not being accurate with the football. Now, the completion percentage went from 52 to 58. If the Bills are going to be an offense that can win games on its own, and if you think about it, last year they won 10 games, in my opinion, because their defense was there. Their defense was there pretty much every week. If the defense wasn't there, they weren't going to win games. They weren't going to outscore anybody. This year, I think they've got the personnel in place to do so. That offensive line, all back, all the pieces there, at more depth added. It's all on Josh Allen. Can he make that step? And I, I love Josh. I really do. I, I'm, I'm a Josh fan. I love the raw tools. I love the attitude. I love the work that he's put in out in California with Carson Palmer's brother, Jordan. He's the quarterback guru who continues to work with him. But it's got to translate to the field. And there are no more excuses. This year, if it happens, is going to be the year that we either decide Josh Allen is going to be the Bills quarterback for the next seven or eight years, or Josh Allen's a guy who was a quarterback drafted too high, and it's time after next year to start looking for the next one. And I think that's a ton of pressure on a kid who was supposed to be a project when he came into the league. I know it's unfair. I know the expectations are unfair. I also think this is the reality of the situation. When you build a team, you've got a short window of success because you've got the rookie quarterback salary. We saw Kansas City blow that up with Patrick Mahomes. We don't know what's going to happen going forward with the salary cap, 
but you're not paying Josh Allen much money this year. You've got guys that need to be resigned next year. Tredavious White, likely Deion Dawkins. These guys are going to take up a lot of money. You've got a chance now to get bang for your buck from your entire roster while your quarterback develops. Is he going to be able to? And if you think about it, top 10 position group, top five defense easily, right? The offensive line is back, and at the end of the year, they were ranked 21st last year by Pro Football Focus. I think they should improve on that ranking this year, being back together. Again, I think Josh Allen can help them in that case, getting rid of the football on time, not scrambling around, taking sacks. Better decision-making helps an offensive line statistically as well. So I think all of these things – When you throw them together, this Bills team, while I've said this, they don't have a ton of spectacular talent. They've got, in my opinion, two elite players. The next couple weeks, NFL Network's going to come out with their top 100 player list. When you look at that list, I think there's only two Bills that are going to be on it. And those two Bills are Tredavious White and Stephon Diggs. I read a thing the other day that the next wave of superstars, Tremaine Edmonds, is on that list. I think Edmonds took huge strides in the second half of last year. The first year and a half of the league, he appeared to be hesitant. Last year, the second half, he was extremely aggressive. So because of that, I think he can be the next guy to make a big step forward. But this year, if the Bills are going to be the team that many of us hope and think they are, it's all Josh Allen. He's got everything that he needs to get those things done. So we'll see where it goes from here. Yesterday, the Washington football team, the team formerly known as the Redskins, announced officially that they're going to change their team name. Great. They're going to change their team name. What's that team name going to be? We don't know. But I did find this interesting. You've had a name that many people have found offensive for decades. You finally have seen the light. Social change is sweeping. And Dan Snyder, God bless him, he he decided, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do this. I I want my new stadium, and I want people to like me, so I'm going to change the name. So you issue a press release that's one paragraph saying you're going to change the name. You have the Redskins logo in the left corner, and seven times in that one paragraph, seven The word Redskins was used. I'm not a PR guy. I'm not somebody who knows how to shift things properly. But I'm also not an idiot. And if your team name is offensive and you're trying to get out from under that, well, maybe it would be smart to not include that name seven times in a paragraph. Now, Snyder is going to get new apparel. So, you know, everyone's going to buy a new jersey and stadium's going to be renamed. Everything's going to be renamed. There's naming rights opportunities. He's going to make money off of this thing. He's going to get have goodwill. And uh, eventually they're going to give him an area to build a new stadium and get that done. So Snyder's winning throughout this whole thing, even though he's handled it horribly just like everything else he's done with his team 
he's never been a successful owner, but somehow he continues to end up on the other side. Former Bill Bruce Smith was a member of a group of Hall of Famers that were playing Family Feud over the weekend. And Steve Harvey's the host of Family Feud. I want you to watch this clip because we all need a laugh every now and then. And I don't know if there's a better clip that made me laugh than this. All right, Bruce, let's go. If Captain Hook was moonlighting as a handyman, he might replace his hook with what tool? A hammer. Try again. A penis. Tell me the age a kid is too old to sleep with a tent. What the f- he said? <laughs> Steve Harvey's as good as it gets. You know, this is a guy who a couple of years ago misread, I don't know if it was the Miss USA or some, one of those pageants, misread the winner. You know, and everyone's like, what? He's as good as it gets. The reaction, absolutely perfect. The statement, absolutely moronic by Bruce Smith. But we all need some levity. It's good to see people laughing and having fun. It's good to see normalcy. That was tremendous. And if if you're a Bills fan who rooted for Bruce Smith, that's one of those things you just can't help but to enjoy. If you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, there's a day tomorrow. Tomorrow will be July 15th. That's important. Not just because it's the new tax day. July 15th is also the last day where people who have been given franchise tags, like Dak Prescott, can sign long-term deals with their team. Prescott is willing to play this year on his $30-plus million franchise tag, which, uh, $30 million? Eh, All right, I'll do it. The Cowboys don't seem inclined to give Dak long-term money. Dak wants to get Patrick Mahomes' money. Maybe not for 10 years, but certainly for longer than one year. Stories have come out this week that the two sides haven't negotiated since March. Seems as though the Cowboys are more than happy to let Dak play on a a one-year take-it-or-leave-it deal, which the franchise tag essentially is. The question is, should the Cowboys pay him? Where does Dak Prescott Rank. If you start ranking quarterbacks, you've got the, the usual suspects. Mahomes, Watson, Lamar Jackson, Breeze, Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Matthew Stafford, who I, I personally think is higher than a lot of other people. Carson Wentz, a lot of other people think is higher than I do. I think he has some great moments, and I think there are other moments he doesn't have all that great. Deshaun Watson is one of the better young quarterbacks I've seen in a long time. You start throwing these names out there, and you think, who would you rather have than Dak Prescott? But sometimes you have to look at your team and your quarterback, and does Prescott work for that team? Last year, Ryan Tannehill came in in Tennessee, took over from Marcus Mariota. The Titans went on a run and won a playoff game. 
under Tannehill. He got rewarded this offseason with a lot of money. Sometimes teams fit guys. I feel that the Cowboys, well, in the past, under Jason Garrett, fit with Dak Prescott. He wasn't always the best quarterback, but I think the problem in the past couple of years wasn't on the offensive side of the ball. And frankly, under Mike McCarthy this year, I don't think it'll be on the offensive side of the ball again. And I get it. That's where a lot of money and draft picks have been spent on the offensive side of the ball. But if the Cowboys defense held up their end of the bargain, to me, the Cowboys would have been a much better team than certainly the 8-8 eight and eight team they were last year. I don't believe they were 8-8 eight and eight last year because the offense didn't hold up its end. At the same time, there were plays that Dak Prescott didn't make. So the question is this. Do you pay him long-term or do you look to replace him? And clearly the Cowboys' strategy is to look to replace him. I also think when you have the quarterback situation that there is in the league now, guys like Andy Dalton come over from Cincinnati for a couple million dollars a year. Cam Newton signed a $1 million deal. Do you need to pay your quarterback 30 million Now, let's go back to Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills for a minute. If Allen doesn't take the steps forward that we talked about, do the Bills start over, or do they look for a guy who may be not their team's guy anymore? It was clear that Cincinnati had had enough with Andy Dalton, wanted to go with Joe Burrow going forward. He's got a ton of potential. No guarantee that Burrow ends up being a good NFL quarterback or even as good an NFL quarterback as Dalton was. But if you have a right team around Andy Dalton, you can win football games. Can you win a Super Bowl? That I'm not sure. But I think that the economics of the quarterback position are so demanding that you have to be very careful. And I, I, as, a, as a person who roots for the Dallas Cowboys and hates Jerry Jones, this is a situation where I'm okay with what Jerry Jones is doing. And it's not that I don't like Dak Prescott. I don't like the economics of the quarterback position in the NFL. If you had asked me a month ago, would you rather have Cam Newton for $2 million and use the other $28 million that you don't have to pay Dak Prescott and spend that money on a safety, a cornerback, maybe a tight end, and have Cam Newton there, or Dak Prescott? Easy. Cam Newton. That's where my mind takes me. Cam Newton's playing for the Patriots for a maximum of $7.5 million. Dak Prescott's going to pay for, play for $31 million this year. That's a $24 million difference. That's easily three very good players you add to your team. And, and are you telling me that Dak Prescott is three very good players better than Cam Newton? These are the internal discussions, I believe, the teams have, and I think we as fans get caught up in, but I love Dak. He's great for the team, and and, and I do. I, I enjoy watching him play. I think he's a very good quarterback. But to me, it's football's a team game. If your left guard is weak, 
As a matter of fact, the Cowboys left guard last year was weak. And you could have spent $6 million to bring in an upgrade because you're not paying your quarterback. That makes your football team better. You win more games. And that's all that really matters. So I think there's going to be more teams less inclined to pay quarterbacks long term. Now, I know I'm saying this one week after Patrick Mahomes just shattered the record for the biggest salary in the NFL. But Patrick Mahomes is a, is an exception to the rule. He's a generational talent. He's three years in with an MVP and a Super Bowl trophy. And he's the face of not only the Chiefs franchise, as I said last week, but the NFL. How many other young quarterbacks will get that? Will Lamar Jackson get that? I love Lamar, and I, I love watching Lamar play. Is it as fun of a quarterback to watch play as I've seen in a long, long time. But he plays the position much differently than a traditional quarterback. So you have to ask the question, is that sustainable? Patrick Mahomes is sustainable. Continue to add speed and protect him. He's going to produce because he's got unique, God-given ability in his right arm. Will Lamar Jackson's God-given athleticism be sustainable over a 10-year contract? It's a tough decision. There's a lot of tough decisions, and I actually think that the Cowboys are making the right one by not spending long-term on having that. So with football maybe coming back, there's college football, and last week I mentioned this, that the Ivy League is likely going to cancel their season, and they did. They canceled all fall sports. No sports will begin until January 1st. This is the first big step. Then the Big Ten and the Pac-12 came out and said this year they will only play within conference, and that's another big step. No such word from the ACC or the SEC yet, but you have to think, or the Big 12 for that matter, but you have to think those are coming, which leaves a lot of holes in people's schedules that you're trying to figure things out. One of the biggest teams in the NCAA football and certainly the most popular is the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. They are independent. They don't have a conference, although they're affiliated with the ACC. They generally are a conference team in name only. But if you look at Notre Dame this year, and, and they've got a good team and a team that could potentially compete for the playoff in normal years, I think this year could affect them in a very big way. Right now, if, it, if the ACC goes to conference only, Notre Dame has six games. Clemson, Wake Forest, Duke, Pitt, Georgia Tech, Louisville. The Clemson game is the game, as they are the best team in the ACC. Now, Notre Dame loses games at Arkansas, Wisconsin, USC, Stanford, Navy, and Western Michigan. So they lose quite a bit. And that's a schedule this year that if Notre Dame plays that full schedule and gets through it, that certainly gets them an invite. Notre Dame also being the most popular team in college football, as I mentioned, let's face it, the playoff is a reality show. You want, rea you want ratings for TV shows. Notre Dame brings that. How do you replace these games? Now, the teams from the ACC that are not 
on their schedule include Syracuse, Florida State, Miami, Virginia Tech, and BC. How many games do you schedule? This is so up in the air. And I was cautiously optimistic college football may happen. I am not optimistic whatsoever at this point that college football may happen. Some colleges are planning to have their students back on campus somewhat early. They think that they can maybe beat the second wave of coronavirus. I know here locally, some of the colleges are starting a couple weeks early and going right up until Thanksgiving. That is their plan. Some other colleges in California, they're not allowing students on campus for the fall semester. If you don't allow students on campus, how can you justify having sports? We talked about this last week with high school sports. The kids aren't in the classroom. How can you have extracurricular activities? I don't believe there's going to be a college football season this year. And saying that kills me. I also don't believe you're going to see one in the spring because logistically now you're screwing up the potential for a normal, and I I should say normal, season in 2021 if you have a spring college football season. Certainly something to keep an eye on. But while these other sports are getting going, college football, I think, is taking a step back. The NBA bubble is up and going in Orlando, and we've had a couple guys break out of the bubble, get quarantined for 10 days. You've had some Instagram models say they've been invited in. I read a thing this morning that side pieces are going to be the death of the NBA. There's so much to figure out. I even threw this out that the NBA with only five players is potentially more damaged than any other league with a player testing positive for COVID. And I used the Houston Rockets as an example. And as it turns out, Russell Westbrook has tested positive for COVID. So he has been quarantined. He is not going to be around the team probably will get back to them at some point. I would hope, hopefully he is dealing with minor symptoms and we'll be good to go, but it's just a reminder of what's going on. But there's other things with the NBA, and and a lot of the NBA players are very outspoken about social justice. Black Lives Matter will be painted on the courts. They're going to be free to use names or slogans like Black Lives Matter on the back of their jerseys. So there's a lot of, of push towards social justice with the NBA. One of the underlying controversies, if you will, about the NBA is their lack of criticism or maybe their all-on criticism of the Houston Rockets general manager who decided to tweet something horrifically like free Hong Kong, you know, in China where Hong Kong had some freedoms that the rest of China didn't. China has taken that away and the NBA has a vested interest financially in all things China. They make tons of money over there. Players, teams, leagues, it's crazy. A writer by the name of David Hookstead wanted to order, and this was a a ruse. He went on because he knew this would happen. Wanted to order a personalized jersey. He wanted to 
put on the back of his jersey instead of the name Free Hong Kong. I want you to listen to this. This is an actual phone call to order from the NBA store online or by phone trying to order a personalized jersey. Take a listen. So just to be clear, I could not get a jersey that said Free Hong Kong, but I can get one that says Kill Cops on the back of it. Yes, sir, you can get that one. Okay. All right. Uh, Well, uh, that's very interesting. So that's where we are. We can do Kill Cops. We can't do Free Hong Kong. Social justice is... What's going on, I think, in this country, for the most part, is great. But we can't pick and choose what's whose freedoms should be protected. It, it can't be only one set of freedoms. You know, the old nobody wins unless we all wins. I still believe in that. I, I still think that as, as human beings on the face of this earth, that we all need to look out for each other, protect each other, and, and be there for each other. Deshaun Jackson's anti-Semitic remarks didn't set off the firestorm that Drew Brees' kneeling for the anthem remarks set off. That the hate that went along with his remarks versus the Drew Brees' remarks to me seemed out of whack. And this is just beyond belief to me. Kill the police, good. Free Hong Kong, bad. You can also put fuck the police or fuck Hong Kong on the back of your jersey. But you can't put free Hong Kong. I'm sorry. It just blows my mind. And maybe I'm an old guy who doesn't understand the logic of things. But people are people. And we need to take care of all people. All people. And we can't just pick and choose who we're going to protect and take care of because we make money in certain places. Shame on the NBA. Now, they've changed things through pressure. You can now put free Hong Kong on the back of your jersey. But the point that this was just yesterday that you couldn't, that the NBA has so obviously chosen money over social justice when it comes to the Hong Kong situation, is deplorable, in my opinion. Again, I understand the money at risk. I also understand there's people over there that are dealing with things that we would never allow to be dealt with. And because of your money, you're willing to turn your back on those people. There's not a more hypocritical thing in the world, in my opinion, than standing up and saying how much you're for people and social justice and reform meanwhile in another part of the world you're very willing to turn your blind eye towards the same atrocities or much worse atrocities for the almighty dollar it's just hypocritical and completely inexcusable shame on you nba shame on you every player that went on and lambasted daryl morley for his remarks and shame on you who didn't stand up and say things. Many people in this group 
of NBA players have been very outspoken. And frankly, I think it's great that they're outspoken because we need people to be outspoken at this time. But don't pick and choose your battles and don't let your battles be chosen because of your financial interests. That makes you a hypocrite. What makes you as bad as anybody else in the world. There, got into politics. How about that? Another week in the books. I hope you enjoyed it. Tell your friends. Make sure you hit me up on Twitter at Carl Falk 2. Keep listening. I'll keep talking, and we'll have a good time together. See you next week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falk and Around podcast.